Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Shares of Walmart, they are lower right now by about 9.5%. This comes after the company reports that its online business not doing as well as analysts had estimated. Well, here to tell us more about Walmart and the retail industry is none other than Bert Flickinger. He is managing director of the Strategic Resource Group. He can be found online on Twitter at Bert underscore Flickinger. Bert, let's begin with Walmart. What do you think happened? Uh, cleaning the deck, uh, clean quarter, clean fiscal, uh, Walmart's investing at record levels uh, to take on Amazon with many fulfillment centers, where rooms, et cetera, be launched through Sam's Club, as you and Lisa uh, reported earlier. And starting this fall, uh, winter of 1819, uh, Walmart's going to take it to Amazon. It's going to be Amazon's worst nightmare. So today's the buying opportunity of a decade with Walmart. Okay, so the buying opportunity of a decade. Bold call uh, given the 9.5% drop in Walmart shares. Can you explain how uh, cleaning the decks relates to slowing online growth? Specifically, what did Walmart do to divert resources away from getting more clients online that you think is productive? It's a complete reset, Lisa, under uh, Mark Laurie with Jet.com, getting rid of uh, Rob Walton, the lawyer's uh, son of Sam Walton, who was chairman of the board, having uh, Doug McMillan really move to a European formula similar to what Ocado does so successfully against Amazon. That's going to be the Walmart model in the U.S. And to do that, they had to divert capital, to your point. So click and collect, pick up in the store, delivery to home offices, and doing it more effectively and efficiently. Uh, you and your Bloomberg uh, listeners and, ter and terminal subscribers will see this within 150 days. So it's just taking capital from the old way, putting it into the new way. I was just looking at Walmart, and they are now offering free two-day shipping. No membership fee. Is that the kind of promotion that is going to cause a reaction at Amazon? It's going to cause a reaction, but as my colleague Paul Bauer says, Amazon does not have the balance sheet to get into a price war with Walmart. Walmart wins. So Walmart's winning on apparel for the first time. It's winning on general merchandise, hard lines, soft lines. And Walmart always wins on food and will win on RX. So Walmart will win ubiquitously while Amazon's winning on their core areas of strengths from books to AWS or Amazon Web Services in the cloud. So is this just a one quarter kind of cleaning the decks type of blip? In other words, if we see uh, sort of lower than expected online sales uh, in the first quarter, is that is that a red flag? 
Uh, it's not a red flag because uh, it's a cleanup, as you referenced this quarter, Lisa, as it will be next quarter, the following quarter. What I'd be most worried about is Campbell's soup uh, that Walmart describes as liquid sodium in a can. Bennett Dorrance, uh, Sounds the, great. the le- leading shareholder of Campbell's, is best friend with Rob Walden. Uh, Walmart is punishing Campbell's, discontinuing items, de-emphasizing the brands, getting tough with all vendors, including vendors that use Amazon web services that they will not be allowed to do business with Walmart. So this is the retail war of the worlds online and in the stratosphere. Turn your attention now. Another retailer that we want to uh, learn more about is this uh, the Rite Aid uh, deal. And uh, you know a little bit about this, uh, this business. Tell us about uh, why couldn't Walgreens get this deal done? I... Uh, professionally, I, th- I think uh, while Gottschall, the antitrust and M&A uh, lawyers, Euromonitor, didn't get the job done. Phil Proger at Jones Day got Jack Eckert Drug Company equally and cleanly split between Rite Aid and CVS. Christine Varney at Cravath gets these deals done. Uh, while Gottschall, they lost Dennis Block to Greenberg Traurig didn't have all the horses that they'd had in the past. And uh, Walgreens Boots uh, paid a fortune for an inferior result. Bob Miller, the humble, brilliant country boy from Mississippi, came in, great, best turnaround retail CEO in 40 years in any sector. Miller bought it for nothing, to, as Lisa referenced. Six and an eighth bonds, 2023, traded up to par. Stockholders Beyond get next par. to nothing. Yeah, and right and uh, uh Albertsons. Albertsons with the Osco drugstores becomes number three overnight. And as you referenced on Bloomberg Radio an hour ago, Rite Aid is the leader in consumables and sales per store. Salted snacks, cookies and crackers, beer, pop, as we say in Buffalo, where I grew up. And uh, also the leader in, in tobacco. So it's a, not because Rite Aid pushes tobacco, but because they're in blue-collar states where 20% of their shoppers smoke. Bob Miller can help make those uh, consumers healthier uh, while driving very significant profitable growth for Albertson Safeway Osco. I love the pop reference that just uh, <laughs> brings me back to uh, my mother uh, and talking about our childhood about the Midwest. Real quick, uh, do you have uh, any sense of what could be the next sort of healthcare pharmaceutical tie-up that you're expecting? Uh, still, still see uh, Albert, Albertsons uh, buy, buying a number of Express tr- Scripts type acquisitions. So, so they're still in the market. Still in the market, looking for everything from from small to big. Uh, as CVS has uh, continued to do, that Dr. Tom Ryan had started at CVS so brilliantly, and uh, Walgreens Boots is uh, put together as well. It's going to have five thousand loca- nearly five thousand locations. More than 4,300 pharmacy counters and more than 300 clinics. Bert Flickenstein. Yeah. And you. Bob Miller does not get the credit for saving Rite Aid the first time from Marty Gra- Grass's financial fraud. Bob Miller came as chairman, turned around the first time, he'll turn around the second time. Bert Flickinger, thank you so much thank for you, being Lisa with us. Ben. Managing Director at Strategic Resource Group. Watch this space. Albertsons may be in the market for yet another purchase.
Is the recent spike in volatility over? And what does it mean for your investments? Russ Kosterich is the head of asset allocation for BlackRock's Global Allocation Fund. BlackRock, of course, helping to manage over $4 trillion worth of assets. And uh, Russ is based in San Francisco. Russ, thanks very much for, for being with us, as always. Uh, maybe just give us your, your current outlook as it relates to volatility and what investors should take away from it. Well, Pim, I think volatility uh, of the the type we had in February and haven't had for quite some time is probably going to become a more permanent feature of the market. Uh, It doesn't mean stocks can't go higher, but it does mean the type of very unusual environment we had in the back half of 16 and most of 17, where stocks just steadily went up day after day. That's probably done. And part of the reason for that is for the first time in a while, we have a Fed that may tighten more than the market expects. Russ, we keep talking a lot about the record auctions of three- and six-month T-bills that are coming up. Are you going to be a buyer at these auctions? Well, right now, we've actually been using the last few weeks to back up in yields to actually add a bit of duration in the U.S. So I do think that yields are becoming more attractive. Wait, hold on one second. Uh, no, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you said duration. That's not short-term debt. That means like 10-year and 30-year treasuries, correct? Well, we haven't been going that far out of the curve. We've mostly been focusing on the 5- to 10-year part of the curve. Uh, but I do think there are a couple of challenges, which means that right now we're waiting and seeing before adding much more. The first challenge is how much more are we going to see inflation accelerate? We've already seen a bit of that in the wage numbers in the January CPI. The second issue, which is a longer-term one, is how effective is the market going to be at absorbing what will probably be trillion-dollar deficits, which, of course, create more supply in the coming years? You know, I, I, I have to wonder, what's driving the, uh, the upward direction of benchmark treasury yields? Is it just the deficit purely on its own? I mean, if you take inflation out of it, let's say we uh, enter a period where we have the same type of inflation, would we still see the, the yield rise that we've seen? I think a lot of it so far has been the yield, pardon me, has been inflation. As a matter of fact, if you go back and you look at where inflation expectations were back in September when bond yields were much lower than they are, inflation expectations have moved up a great deal, about 50 basis points. Uh, and the good news there is that we've probably already seen much of that adjustment. So I do think the question going forward is, with an economy that's likely to grow faster than we've seen in the post-crisis world, and with more supply coming at a time when the economy is already already running close to capacity, is that going to nudge real or inflation-adjusted rates higher? And I think that's one of the things that is the market a bit nervous right now. All right. So if, if that's the case, uh, Russ, and you do see this extended growth in the U.S. economy, won't that benefit emerging markets? It does benefit emerging markets. As a matter of fact, I think one of the places where you would expect to see the biggest benefit is in emerging markets. So a lot of people, when they think of EM equities, they think only about the dollar. The dollar is less relevant for EM equities than it used to be. They tend to run lower current account deficits. They have higher reserves. The biggest determinant of EM stocks' relative performance has been the strength of the global economy. So if you do believe, as we do, that you're going into an environment where not only U.S. growth is likely to be stronger, but the global economy is likely to be stronger, that's an environment where EM stocks are likely to do well. So, Russ, you you said that you've been or you had been increasing a little bit of duration, particularly five-year treasuries. What else have you done recently? What other sort of allocation shifts uh, have you made that that you think uh, are important? Well, the other thing we've added a bit to is our gold holdings. 
Uh, gold is an interesting asset class. You know, a lot of people wrestle with it. Is it an asset class? Is it a currency? Uh, I think the most important thing about gold is gold is a risk mitigant. Not always. It doesn't work in all circumstances. But going back to the original question, are we going to see higher volatility than last year? I think we are. And if part of what you want to do is have a portfolio that can dampen that volatility, create a little bit of a smoother ride, then I think having a moderate amount of gold helps. So that's been another place we've been adding to in, in recent weeks. So how much have you been adding there? And in contrast, have you been reducing risk assets? Well, we've added, we haven't added that much to gold. Uh, we've added probably about roughly maybe 25 basis points. So our gold position is somewhere around 5%. I think that's probably about right for the fund. Uh, outside of gold, we have been looking for other places to add, uh, mostly in some of the higher quality companies in the U.S. that we think can produce solid earnings growth, uh, regardless of whether or not we see rates being a bit higher right now. What kind of companies? Technology? We have been adding to technology. Uh, we do have a modest overweight to tech. Now, again, I think with tech, you've got to be careful. As we all know, there are pockets of stretch valuations. We do think many of the large cap tech names uh, do still offer good value at these levels. When you talk about uh, stretched valuations, what kind of metric are you using? What's the, what's the comparison? Well, you know, this is one of the challenging things. There never is the one right valuation metric. And I think right now, if you look at U.S. equities, by and large, the market is on the expensive side. The good news is that if you have an environment, which we believe we're in, uh, where earnings growth is likely to be strong, then we believe these valuations are sustainable over the next year. Having said that, I think one of the things a lot of investors want to think about is adding to positions in non-U.S. markets. I've already spoken about EM. I would add Japan as another market that we right now are very overweight. And the reason this is important is that for most of the last seven or eight years, investors have benefited from a home country bias, most of their money in the U.S. In a strengthening global economy, other economies are catching up, and those markets are likely to also start to catch up with the U.S. Russ Kostrich, always wonderful to catch up with you. Uh, really interesting comments. Russ Kostrich, head of asset allocation for BlackRock's Global Allocation Fund and uh, BlackRock, uh, the biggest asset management uh, firm in the world. New news from Washington. An attorney who worked for a prominent law firm was charged uh, with making false statements to federal authorities as part of special counsel Robert Mueller's probe of Russian collusion into the 2016 presidential election. Here to help us make some sense of all this is Richard Kahn. He is managing partner of Eurasia Advisors, and he joins us in our 1130 studios. Uh, Richard, um, can you tell us about you're knitting together the various public pieces of information that we have received, the various indictments of the uh, 13 people uh, previously having participated in some kind of meddling in the U.S. Uh, 2016 presidential election. And now uh, this latest indictment, uh, char charge rather, of making false statements is having to do with Alex van der Zwan, uh, charged with lying to the FBI and Robert Mueller's uh, office about uh, his work related to a report that uh, was prepared for the former president of uh, Ukraine. 
Well, look, the first thing I would comment on is, you know, that the Mueller indictment and these other, other indictments speak to the breadth and scope and capabilities of the Russian FSB in terms of their ability and willingness to the mount— The successor to the KGB. Yes, correct. Th- their ability to mount what we might call asymmetrical attacks to deal with uh, either uh, retaliatory types of situations or uh, what they view as defensive situations. That's how they would characterize it. Uh, but they are extremely effective in uh, locating— people not just in the United States but elsewhere who are part of whether governments or part of press or part of institutions that can affect public influence uh, and they are ex- they're extremely effective in their willingness to utilize those techniques to try to see people elected to power that are favorable to them so i think you know the big benefit of the Mueller indictment as i look at it is it is uh, it brings to the forefront that there is actually something that took place here. The analogy I would draw is to say the tower is falling during uh, the September 11th attack. In the mindset of the United States, there was no question that that happened. Up until the moment that we have the Mueller indictment, which I really hope everyone will read, uh, there was some doubt caused by potential co-conspirators as to whether there was actually a a set of crimes that, that occurred. Now we know that, and you have to be basically willing not to look at the World Trade Center tapes and and accept them to take the view that there really is no crime here at this stage. So it it has changed dramatically the uh, ability of uh, the narrative in the United States to disagree on at least one fundamental set of crimes that has occurred against our nation. So we're heading into midterm elections. Reading over the indictment, do you think that uh, the Russian government will likely try to interfere again? And do you think that the U.S. government will be better prepared to intervene? Oh, look, I'm not optimistic that our current administration has any interest whatsoever in stopping that from happening. Uh, I think it's clear that Trump and his team were the beneficiaries of Russian interference. That comes out of the Mueller report. Uh, I think they are in a conflicted position, to say the least, in terms of wanting to see that stop and and not see people that are going to continue to help protect him elected to Congress in the midterm election. So I I would look to, if you will, our traditional resources, and namely the head of our own government, which, as you know, leads our law enforcement agencies, as essentially uh, hopefully conflicted in this um, and seeking to avoid uh, being drawn into it by by making statements, uh, you know, that he is not uh, involved. I'm I'm just pausing for a second to try to figure out, is this a case of following the money and the power, or is it just about money, at least for some of the people involved? Oh, I, I think it's going to be a mixture. Uh, I would expect that Mueller is going to come out with indictments that lay out, uh, for example, obviously the DNC hacking, uh, as well as the link to uh, WikiLeaks. I think he's going to lay out uh, money trail issues that deal with Trump and with his family uh, that are based on, for example, Don Jr.'s statements in 2008 that a disproportionate amount of money came from Russia you know, into the Trump organization. I, I think all of those are going to weave together a picture that demonstrates how it is that the Russians essentially were able to recruit at a certain level uh, agents to uh, to work with them in the United States. So you speak a lot with people in Russia who are close to Russia, uh, have been involved with deal-making cross-borders. What's the perception from that side? 
Well, look, uh, let me start by saying it would be a, a huge mistake and tragedy if the lesson of out, of out of all this is that Russians are bad. This, this is not at all what we ought to be thinking about. Although this clearly threw a wrench in the relationship between the U.S. and Russia, regardless of what the uh, leadership does. Oh, yes. No, and I'll get to that. What I'm referring to is we all have neighbors and friends who are of Russian descent, for example, here, or may you know, be, be immigrants or may, in fact, be still living in Russia. Uh, th- there's always a possibility that the FSB is involved in some way in public life in our country or in others, but that certainly doesn't mean that simply by virtue of being Russian that you're somehow implicated in this. I think it's an important point for us all to keep in mind, lest we go down the road that Trump wants us to go down of divisiveness and of making assumptions about people. But in terms of the, number one, the business climate is absolutely dead between Russia and the United States. I think Russians themselves are well aware that their government did this. Some of them take great pride in that. Uh, Others are embarrassed and are uh, very hopeful that over time this regime in Russia will change. They're led, for example, by a gentleman named Navalny, who comes out with videos periodically uh, demonstrating the corruption at the highest levels of the Russian government. Uh, He just came out with one that was relevant to this very investigation, showing ties between Russian oligarchs and this investigation. In, in other words, in the in the uh, both the hacking as well as in the uh, uh, the election uh, for you know potential fraud itself. So uh, and that was taken down off the internet by the Russians within days once they saw that it was up there. Really, you know, superb work by uh, by Navalny. Uh, but look, at the end of the day, the Russians have their agenda, and uh, we obviously must, as a first step, focus on defense, meaning dealing with uh, the likelihood, which I would view as virtually a certainty, that the Russians are going to continue these activities in terms of influencing our electorate as, as best they can during the upcoming midterms. And simultaneously, we're going to have to eventually get to the uh, prosecution of people who in the United States may have been involved in this, if only to send the message worldwide that if you cooperate with the Russians in these activities, there will be a day of reckoning. That is an important thing to do to undermine their infiltration of these different organizations. Richard Kahn, thank you so much for being with us. Richard Kahn, managing partner of Eurasia Advisors based in New York. The Petro is going on sale today. You may not have heard of it. It may just be the first sovereign cryptocurrency, and it is being issued by Venezuela. Is this a game changer or uh, simply a stunt to try to attract some more money? Here to talk about that and what's been going on in the cryptocurrency worlds, Chris Berniski, partner and uh, of placeholder, also advisor to ARK Investment Management. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Chris, thank you so much for coming back. So what do you make of Petro? I would go with the latter assessment in terms of this is a stunt. um, And I don't think of it as a cryptocurrency. Um, And the reason I say that is cryptocurrencies need to be decentralized in the infrastructure that supports them, in the way in which the code is curated, in the way in which the community is managed. And the Petro is really a top-down, hierarchically controlled asset. And it's much more akin to a new way to tokenize oil. So to use an analogy here, 
when the first gold ETFs came out in the early 2000s, that didn't create a new asset class, right? That was just a new wrapper or a new wrapper around gold specifically. But the gold asset class remained intact and that's what drove the value. With the Petro, we really have a new wrapper around oil um, and that's not creating a new asset class, which is why I wouldn't put it in the bucket of crypto assets with cryptocurrencies, crypto commodities, and crypto tokens. But does it set some sort of precedent for sovereign issuance of digital tokens? That it does. And and I think that's the key takeaway here. Um, these are things I call crypto fiat um, in terms of you're using the underlying technology. And this is very common with disruptive innovations where you have a new technology come online that's highly disruptive and uh, incumbents will take parts of that technology and use it to make their existing services better, faster, cheaper. And I think this is an example of that and we'll see a lot more of this from other nation states in the years to come. Chris, maybe just some definitions uh, to help me here. What is a cryptocurrency in your mind? So I think of a cryptocurrency as a asset that is uh, tracked using an immutable and distributed ledger with code that is open source and community defined. All right. Does that differ from a crypto token? So this is where we get into my taxonomy. So yes, it would differ. Um, if we think of the asset class as a whole as crypto assets, there are right now three, maybe four verticals within that asset class. So there's cryptocurrencies, which are means of exchange, store of value, unit of account, but using that stack. There's crypto commodities, which are really taking all of our physical world commodities, but applying that to digital world commodities. So compute or storage or GPU flops or whatever it may be. And GPU then, what? Flops. flops. So like uh, that's a metric for a graphical processing unit. Flops is the number of floating point calculations it can make in a second. Um, and then crypto tokens, if we use the analogy of an economy bringing together uh, currencies and commodities to create finished goods and services, I see crypto tokens as the consumer-facing applications that are provisioning these finished digital services to consumers. Okay. What is an initial coin offering? What is that? How does that connect with all this? An initial coin offering is one means of many to create a liquidity event for a crypto asset. Um, so something that concerns me is I see people conflating ICO or initial coin offering with crypto assets broadly. That's, that's not the right connection to make. It's one mechanism, one liquidity event. There are many, other, many others. We started this whole space with mining, right, where you're organically minting and issuing the crypto asset as a function of resources provided to the network. There are things like airdrops, where you actually just give it away to try and seed a user and holder base. Um, and there are all kinds of evolving things. There's auctions, which we were talking about before, which is you know, maybe a more responsible variant of an ICO. Um, but really important to not conflate ICO with crypto assets probably. So Chris, what your firm does is supply venture capital to uh, firms in the crypto space, correct? I'm trying to get a sense of where the opportunities lie at this point, what types of companies look promising to you, given the fact that there has been this rush of cash into uh, a lot of companies almost indiscriminately. Uh, where is the value? What kinds of companies? For us, um, as a venture capital firm, right, we're focused 10 years out. That's our, our time horizon. And when we're looking at, at teams, they're not companies, right? They're decentralized information networks incentivized with a token. And so we're looking at the crypto economics, the governance structure, 
all of these things that we think will lay a foundation for something to provide utility and value five, 10 years out. So you're not giving money to a company or uh, you're, you're trying to help spur activity on decentralized platforms. Is that correct? Yes. So a way to think of it um, is we are funding teams early on that want to build future protocols, future networks. Um, and so they can raise, say, a million or $2 million, not a massive amount, right, but enough to fund, say, a year or two years of development to then have a working protocol to then more responsibly be able to, to launch a crypto asset. Isn't this really dangerous just because there a lot of people expect there to be some massive shakeout where there's one winner in the space or three winners that take all? We think um, this structure is actually the most responsible approach to the market. Um, by having a 10-year fund, we inject time diversity, both into the way our theses evolve and uh, valuations evolve, right? If we have a massive valuation reset, we can recover from that because we're not fully allocated. Um, and then in terms of you know picking our spots and whether we're going to have a handful of winners or uh, a vast proliferation of winners, that's to be seen. Um, for us as a venture firm, historically, venture firms can return their fund based on one big home run, right, that goes 100x or goes 1,000x. Um, so that is one option, or we could have a number of base hits that get us there. Uh, the future is to be seen, uh, but we have designed this structure to really support the entrepreneurs and developers behind these networks and allow them to uh, responsibly build over the long term. The uh, governor of the Financial Supervisory Service in South Korea has said that the government will, quote, support cryptocurrency trading if normal transactions are made. They already have a ban on anonymous trading. That took place at the end of uh, January. What do you believe will happen as a result of this? I think that we're going to see a lot of learnings from the equity markets and the traditional capital markets um, about best practices brought to crypto. Um, and that's fine. That's a good thing, right? We need to better protect consumers. Um, and so I just see South Korea um, as leading the charge in that. Japan has also been active and the EU is active um, in terms of classifying uh, Bitcoin as a foreign currency. I think that was in 2016. Um, but we're going to see more and more conversation around this. I'm just glad that the fear, uncertainty, and doubt from mid-December has been clarified, and it's clear South Korea isn't banning cryptocurrency trading. They're just better regulating it. So if you want to learn about if you want to be in the forefront of cryptocurrencies, just take a trip to South Korea. Uh, that's one of my plans. All right. Well done. Thanks very much for being with us, uh, Chris Berniski. He is a partner, placeholder, advisor to ARK Investment Management. He can be followed on Twitter at C. Berniski. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.